0: What up, party people? <laughs> welcome to Hot Takedown.
1: Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, a sports podcast from 538. If you're just joining us, this is a show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is July 16th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by one of my co hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. What up, Neil?
0: Hey Sarah. How are you?
1: I'm great. How are you?
0: I'm doing
2: well.
1: Fantastic. And on the line from Los Angeles is five thirty eight sports editor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff.
2: Good morning, Sarah. How are you?
1: I'm good. How how are you?
2: Are you okay? Everything okay? I'm fine. I'm fine. I've had a lot of coffee. We can't tell at all. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> Is, is the Federer match still going on? As
1: as <laughs> it is, actually. It just ended. <laughs> it's on day it's three. It's game 121 to game 122. Well, we, should, we have a lot to talk about today, but we should mention right off the top that amazing uh, Wimbledon final between Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic. Our 538 slack was... All over that uh, that match Sunday morning, we all came together to watch it together. Neil on crappy Wi Fi.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, there's nothing like the feeling in a very crucial shot to sort of have like Federer winding up and then have it freeze and have the little like circular loading
2: thing, and you're just like, "All right, well, whatever happened, what happened, whatever happened happened, I guess." Yeah. Another one of our contributors told me that he was driving. And this is Terrence Doyle, and he listened to the match on the radio. Oh, oh wow. I've never listened to tennis on the radio. No. What That's... is that like? It sounds bad. It sounds <laughs> not ideal. Hockey on the radio is impossible. Also yeah, it's seems terrible.
1: terrible. Do they just like talk about every other shot or every fourth shot or something? Like by the time it's you describe like, it, you'd be. on And too. Federer
0: hits it, and yeah. <laughs> and Djokovic forehand, hits it. Backhand,
1: forehand. <laughs> <laughs> So I feel like I was very alone in rooting for Djokovic. Uh, it seemed like everyone, including literally everyone in <laughs> at Wimbledon, was rooting for Federer. Uh, where did you guys come down?
0: I'm generally pro Federer just because I don't know. I like his uh, his his game aesthetically uh, the most of all the uh, the big three, and also the fact that he is old and continues to sort of chug along and and do
2: uh, Federer-like things is impressive. He's 37. What is he, 37 or 38?
1: Yeah, he's 37. But
2: doesn't he seem like he's, like, maybe 51? He just has, like, the demeanor of an older man. Like, I cannot believe I'm older than him. It doesn't make sense.
0: We're, like, effusively talking about Federer right now, and he didn't even win the match. But he's, like, crossed over past that point when you're just like, it's weird that this guy is still good at this age to now uh, it it's sort of expected again that he's good. You know, we, we've sort of come full circle with him and then maybe we'll, like, go through that round again. I think Tom Brady, I mean, it always, always kind of comes back to him when we're talking about old athletes, but I yeah. think he's gone through the same phase where, like... A couple of years ago, it was more weird that he was doing what he was doing at the age he was doing. And then last year, we're just like, "Yeah, Tom Brady. Of course, the Patriots are back in the Super Bowl." You right. know,
1: They'll, he'll be, he'll still be, he'll in still be doing this forever. He's Seventy years old, of yeah. course, obviously. Yeah, I don't know. I, everyone loves Roger Federer. And it's not like I. It's not that I don't. I just. I just, I guess I just, I don't really like him that much. I find him kind of, see, you were talking about how. That's interesting. I know, I don't, I've never really liked him that much. I've always found myself rooting for. Whoever his opponent is, yeah, I'm still kind of mad about. Is it his
2: general kind and classy (laughs) demeanor that turns you around? So,
1: well, this is Neil and I were talking about this. Neil called Djokovic smug.
2: Well,
0: he had a very uh, he he tends to have kind of a a smug look on his face uh, at times during matches, whereas Federer not all that smug.
1: See, I find Federer very smug, and I get kind of annoyed at his like, "I'm the." I don't know, like.
0: I mean, he hits shots know, with see. tremendous he's flair. Erudite. Yeah, he's very Ant- erudite. <laughs> he 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 is a god among men. Oh my
1: gosh! <laughs> I'm still a little mad about the match that he beat Andy Roddick in many.
0: One of the other like longest matches ever.
1: Right, and after that, the like nike or whoever had a commercial all teed up for um federer had won some had broken some record with that win and i was like you know that's rude roddick easily could have won that match and i'm still kind of mad about that whole wait didn't situation. they
0: didn't they do that nike did that with like the u.s women's national
2: team
1: well, sure, within minutes <laughs> of
2: them winning also
1: they were supposed to win though
2: I, i'm with you sarah i was i was rooting hard for roddick that day by the way that match was 16 14 yeah they didn't have this 12 12 time right it, but right. yet shorter and then I was looking at the <laughs> stats because I was curious like I was like that felt long. I'm surprised that was there were 72 aces in that match there were just 35 in this match, which is interesting. So I think in terms of, like, rallies, this was obviously more entertaining.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that was very much Roddick's game, too, just pound the, pounding the but serve. But actually,
2: Federer was also, like, all serve back then.
1: He was he was much younger then. <laughs> was that 2007?
2: 2009. It, it was actually the most disappointing July ever because I was looking this up. I was talking to the same person, Terrence Doyle. Um that was the same month where Tom Watson oh, lost, or bogeyed that final yeah. hole to lose the the British was Open. Was that Stuart so we had that Sink? And we had lose. Yeah, Stuart Sink won.
0: It's
1: interesting that I don't remember that at all, but I do remember like every moment of the tennis. I, the golf. Well you're just not sort of a sh-
0: huge golf fan, so on today's show we're gonna talk about golf. <laughs>
1: golf fan. I think I'm more of a golfer than you are. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about tennis later. On today's show, we'll be joined by 538 Editor-in-Chief Nate Silver to dig into what our NBA prediction model says about the 2019-2020 season. We'll look at what to expect of the final major of the PGA season, the British Open, which kicks off this Thursday. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Because the NBA never ends, and after an eventful couple of weeks in free agency, the betting markets for the 2019-2020 NBA season are already going wild. Vegas sees a wide-open title race next season. Here's Bill Simmons on his podcast, On the Ringer, reflecting on the NBA betting market.
0: So the NBA futures, I've never seen this before, (laughs) really, ever since we've looked at futures, where 4-1 to is the best odds you can get on a favorite, or Mm -hmm. like the lowest odds. Mm -hmm. That's never happened.
1: Today, we're joined by a special guest, 538 editor in chief, Nate Silver. Thanks for joining us, Nate.
0: Yeah, thank you guys.
1: It's great to have you back. So, just today, 538 has launched our own predictions for the upcoming NBA season. So, to discuss how our model compares with other predictions, we're employing one of our favorite segments. This, this is Model Talk. Talk. Always good. <laughs> we're,
0: we're, we amuse ourselves way too
1: I know.
2: easily. Oh,
0: we're just getting started.
2: I actually missed. I, just for the
0: record, I missed <laughs>
2: the cue. I was. I had my head down.
1: That's. Sad. I like that you just like then watched and not. We, we can. Know. We can
2: edit that you in. Patch in, later, in
0: Jeff so saying this is model talk.
1: <laughs> so Nate, let's uh, let's talk about what our projections see. Do our projections also see a wide open NBA?
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, people are used to the Warriors era where you had one or kind of one-and-a-half dominant teams with the Warriors and the Cavs. And we're no longer in that era. We're in an era now where preseason no team is projected to win 60 games. Some team probably will because they'll be better than we think or because they'll get lucky. But we are in an era where, to my mind, and this sort of matches our projections and sort of doesn't, to my mind there are kind of six teams that are a little bit ahead of the pack in terms of their likelihood of winning NBA title, I want to say one other thing too. Actually, two other things. You know, one, because we have this closely bunched pack, it could easily be a team that makes a move at midseason, a team that makes a move between now and the regular season that kind of leapfrogs ahead of the pack, or a team that gets a breakout star. So this could be topsy turvy. Maybe the more important thing for a model talk segment is like, we're actually working on, we're going to talk a little bit about this, an entirely new rating system. So Carmelo is a uh, a projection system. It takes other people's ratings, projects them going forward, figures out which players are similar, and how guys age, and stuff like that, right? But we've been relying until recently on two rating systems called BPM, which is Box Plus Minus, and RPM, which is Real Plus Minus. And we're sort of tired of those systems for a couple of reasons. One of those is that Um, they're not really taking advantage of all the modern data that we have in the NBA, including stuff that's publicly available. So we've already, for example, released a system called Draymond, which I know we're going to talk about. Draymond, what's the acronym stand for?
0: (laughs) I I was just looking this up. It's like defensive defensive rating, rating, accounting for yielding minimal minimal openness openness. by nearest defender. Right. (laughs) Um,
3: of
1: course. I mean, so lucky that those yeah. words spelled Draymond. Really, what a we, great...
0: We are on such a hot streak between Carmelo, <laughs> and Draymond, Draymond. There's going to be another... Yes. Another... Well, uh, so so uh, this is for the new metric that you were talking about that has um, some so, of the player tracking data yeah. in addition to uh, the usual kind of box score numbers that you would find in a stat like BPM.
3: Yeah. So we released Draymond, uh, was it last week? And got a really good reception. I mean, it actually kind of passes the eye test pretty well, which is not the perfect way to evaluate metrics, but like, but it kind of, you know, it measures parts of defense that guys like Draymond Green and Rudy Gobert are really, really good at.
0: Draymond is the best
3: uh, shot the past, defender in the league over the past six years, according
0: to Draymond. <laughs> this is really
3: valuable data. So for a long time, it was kind of a mystery um, who actually was the closest defender in each shot, and now we know that guys vary a ton in terms of how many shots they defend. Um, and also vary a ton in terms of the field goal percentage that they let in. And those differences are not quite as profound as, you know, as people scoring, but like basically we're actually mirroring the other part of the game now. You kind of have, in essence, like defensive usage rate and shooting defensive efficiency, which is pretty valuable stuff, it turns out. But with that having got a fairly good reception, we decided to, um, take things one step further and we're still in the midst of the step to create an overall system that uses other types of advanced tracking data. That system is called Raptor. Ra- Raptor. <laughs> wow. Robust algorithm using player tracking and on-off ratings. Wow,
0: that there, that works. That I mean, I think works. you had to find something that had PT in it. I wanted the uh, PT, yeah, for player tracking. And we're
3: kind of uh, as a result of the Raptors winning the championship, as our previous algorithm predicted very tenuously, but <laughs> technically did predict them to beat the Bucks and the Warriors by a small fraction of a percent. That's well, great. it's better
0: than our previous suggestion, which was, I think, super duper plus my... <laughs> <Super> duper... <laughs> well, we want to avoid an SDPM.
3: Or... Yeah.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> We're halfway through creating Raptor, and we know enough about it to know that it's going to affect, with all the player movement, some important players. So we know pretty sure, for example, that Raptor is going to be lower on Russ Westbrook than the ratings we're using right now and consequently lower on the rockets and therefore the rockets although it loves james harden so much it might sort of even out um we know that it's higher on both Kawhi leonard and paul george than than other rating systems and so therefore the clippers who do not do particularly well in our current version will probably see their numbers improve i mean you know it's higher on Clay Thompson and Draymond Green than some other systems are. I think it actually, I don't want to toot the horn too much because we're only halfway through it, but like it does actually kind of seem to resemble like consensus smart opinion about how good NBA players are better than the current ones do. And so sometimes you're like, oh, well, you know, this advanced stat, you know, why does it show that Kawhi Leonard isn't that good? Well, it's because the advanced stat is imperfect and it's using data that's less advanced than what we have now. In some cases, there are shortcuts these systems take. In some cases, there are I don't know how technically you want to get, right? This is model talk. (laughs) One reason why BPM, for example... So why does box score plus minus overrate Russell Westbrook? Well, one reason why is they use a term that's a multiplicative term where they basically multiply rebounds and assists together. So Russell Westbrook gets a lot of rebounds and assists. That term, we think, in our testing, that is not helpful. That's actually harmful, right? To have a non-linear term in a linear equation is often a bad idea. Also, using the advanced stats, so Westbrook gets a lot of cheap rebounds. There is no such thing as a cheap offensive rebound because offensive rebounds are rare. And he does get actually for a guard a fair number of offensive rebounds. But the defensive rebounds he gets are not very valuable. It's often Stephen Adams deferring to Westbrook or some other player deferring to Westbrook so that he can kind of pad his rebound stats. But, but we found that on defense, only what the NBA calls contested rebounds really add value relative to replacement. Otherwise, it's kind of like the team gets the ball back 72% of the time after any possession or any made shot, right? And so it's not really that valuable to have an uncontested rebound where you happen to be in the right place. So with that said, any of the six teams with our new rating system could be on top when we release a new version in however many days or weeks or months or whatever, right?
0: <laughs> and Nate, who are the six teams? You mentioned the Clippers, okay. so you mentioned I'll, the Warriors, yeah, I'll list and the them in, in
3: order of the current of the current system, okay, right, which is based on BPM and RPM and Carmelo moving these stats one year forward. So we have in the following order the 76ers as the single most likely team to win the title, although wow. only at 28%, followed by Houston at 24%, Lakers at 12, Bucks at 10, Warriors at 10, Clippers at 5, and I I'm pretty sure that Clippers number is going to go up, you know. Teams also have to fill out their rosters too, you know, whichever team signs Andre Iguodala, When a lot of these teams currently have replacement-level players filling in the roster, that will improve them, for example, a meaningful amount because these rosters are not yet full. I think you can make a case for any of these six teams. I think the trendy picks are are the Lakers, Clippers, and the Bucks. So I kind of want to talk a little bit about the other three, right, which are the Warriors, the Sixers, and the Rockets. I'm kind of surprised, first of all, at how absent the Warriors are from the championship conversation. Yeah, in the media, In the media, right? Yeah.
0: They've pretty much like written them off with the combination of losing Durant in free agency and then Klay Thompson's injury. Uh, it's it's almost being treated like the not only is the dynasty over, but also this isn't even like a championship contender anymore. I've, I think I've heard some hot takes even that they like might struggle to make the playoffs. Yeah, and according to our metrics, um, even after probably uh, maybe more so after we add Raptor, if it's higher on Klay Thompson than some of these plus minus systems are, that seems like a, uh, a, a fallacious thought.
2: I think people are just down on how Curry and D'Angelo Russell is going to look or how that's going to work, both being point guards.
3: I mean, it's, it's a little weird. I, I mean, D'Angelo Russell they might also flip for someone at midseason or something. It's just kind of an asset they've traded for. But it's kind of like even if you ignore that part of the team, right, they have, they have Steph Curry, who is certainly still in the conversation for being the best player in basketball and who's very good in the playoffs. so team has a lot of playoff experience, and that matters. You have Clay Thompson and Draymond Green. You have Russell to provide additional shooting, which actually was a problem for the Warriors a little bit in the line without Durant and without Clay. So I think that, kind of, that makes a certain amount of sense to me. You have Kevon Looney, which actually... Is an advanced stats darling, and our new stat yeah, yeah. does seem to like a fair bit.
0: Well, that was a, one of the things I was going to ask you when it came to the Warriors. Is you know our system has really loved Kevon Looney under the previous configuration, and does Raptor change that at all, or if anything, is it even higher on Kevon? It
3: likes Looney even more for some. I mean, it likes his huh. defense. Mostly, Maybe he's right? just
0: good at basketball. Maybe
3: he's a good player. <laughs> Maybe he is. Yeah, <laughs>
1: anything's possible. Yeah,
3: he's not getting paid like it. So the Warriors, I'm just a little miffed why they're not in the conversation. The other two it gets a little bit more obvious. I mean, the Rockets. You know, our current stat is a believer. In Russell Westbrook, our new version may not be, so that will knock them down a peg, but still probably in the conversation. The Rockets have been as good as any team except the Warriors in basketball for the past two seasons. They are on the older side. It kind of makes sense for them to be in the conversation. The one that surprised me the most probably is the Sixers, but look, the Sixers, you can argue that they sort of in some ways not totally unlike the Raptors template from last year in the sense of like, Everyone is at least pretty good in that starting lineup. I don't know how cohesive they're going to be because it's not necessarily a very cohesive team. Maybe it's one of those on-paper teams, right?
0: It's also a f- massive team in terms of size. In terms of in size. A, in a, a league where things have kind of been trending in the opposite direction, but I don't know if this is going to provide a template to maybe, you know, for for a large team to succeed.
3: No, it's going to be fun to watch. They do have their two-way superstar in the form of Joel Embiid, who I think it's a lot of overlooked and kind of the best 5-10 to 10 player in the league conversation. I know our new stat likes Joel Embiid a lot. counterpoint might be, okay, wasn't Milwaukee better in the regular season last year? And the answer is, yeah, they certainly were better in the regular season. But they're missing Malcolm Brogdon, who is a good player. They don't have Miritich off the bench anymore, right? And so you basically have a team that's like four players deep. One of whom might be the best player in the NBA, but none of the next three are like spectacular players, and like, and that depth can take a, a fairly big toll over the course of over the course of 82 games.
0: Well, one question I had, kind of putting aside the the six teams that sort of have emerged at the top, and presumably that won't change much when we put in this new metric. But do you see this league? next year as being particularly difficult to forecast uh one one of the interesting things to me is that you know we've had this model for a few years and it's i think it's done pretty well over the years you know in addition to calling that raptors championship when certain people like me didn't believe in it uh it's it's done a solid job of predicting you know just team records going into the year and, and so on and so forth um but are we kind of coming off a summer in which there was An unprecedented amount of star player movement, uh, I I think it's fair to say, uh, that these models are optimized for sort of normal operating NBA conditions, which usually involve stars staying with teams, especially as you go further back into history and kind of lineups resembling what they look like from the previous year in most cases. Is this like a special test case for not just our model but all NBA predictors looking ahead to the 2020 season? Now that you have basically they just took all the stars in the league and threw them in like a bag and shook it up and then pulled out, you know, uh people at random and put them on rosters. It wouldn't have been that different than what from what actually happened um looking forward to next year's rosters.
3: Yeah, that's part of the motivation for putting more work into it this off season, some of which isn't complete yet, like I said, but like yeah, I mean the way most of these modern stats work is that it all sums up at the team level. So if a team has a point differential of, of plus six points per 100 possessions, then the player ratings have to add up to that. Um, and so what that means is that let's say you have a system that underrates Kawhi Leonard on the Raptors last year. By definition, that has to overrate some other Raptor, Kyle Lowry, Siakam, I don't know, right? As long as the teams stay intact, the errors kind of cancel out, right? You overproject Leonard, um, or underproject Leonard, you overproject Lowry or whomever else, right, and but the team rating isn't that much affected, right? When a third of the league, including a third of the superstars, change rosters though, it is pretty important to to allocate credit and assign blame accordingly. And there are, by the way, other teams in the conversation. I mean, the other teams with a greater than one percent chance of winning the title are the Nuggets, Jazz and Celtics. You know, I think the convention wisdom might be higher on on the Nuggets and the Jazz than than we are.
2: Yeah, I was going to say I think the Jazz are this year's kind of trendy pick that you see. And actually, if you look at the betting lines, they're right in line. I think they're around fourteen to one. But I was going to ask you about them because we have them down for fifty wins yet less uh, a, a smaller chance of winning the title compared to the Clippers, who have. Projected for 48 wins. So it's part of the Clippers have higher high-end talent.
3: And our model assumes that in the playoffs, you get more benefit from high-end talent because, number one, those guys play more minutes. But number two, we also have a component that looks at, are there guys that in the past have performed better in the playoffs than their regular season and Kawhi Leonard is someone who has performed historically better in the playoffs than the regular season. So it's assuming that Kawhi Leonard in the playoffs, when he's not being load managed, when he's playing 38 minutes a game, and when he's his best self, is a valuable player. I do know, again, like, not to harp on this too much, I do know, like, some of these players, like Mitchell, Gobert, and Conley are all guys that our new stat, I think, likes a fair bit. And so they'll probably boost the Jazz a little bit. And so I'm not totally opposed to people saying, oh, yeah, the Jazz are in this conversation. I'm not a huge fan of the Nuggets on the other hand, the way they're currently constructed. But you know, you can imagine if Jamal Murray takes a next step or something, right? You know, one team it's not very high on is, is Portland who some people say, well, they were the, you know.
1: It's never high on Portland. Yeah, it wasn't yeah.
0: high on Portland in the conference finals <laughs> or really at any point last season. They're one of the kind of teams that our, our model kind of chronically slept on, maybe some people would say. I mean, another team I would put in that conversation that's interesting to me is the Brooklyn Nets, who made some of the biggest splashes of the off season, And we think that they'll actually get worse record-wise. Uh, we have them projected for 38 wins and give them – uh, only a fifty-eight percent chance of even making the playoffs. Obviously, Kevin Durant is going to be out all of next season, so that's part of it. But they got Kyrie Irving. You know, they they still have a few players from that surprising year last year. But again, that's a team that our model was low on most of last year as well.
3: Well, I mean, without without Kyrie Irving, or excuse, me, without Kevin Durant, it's not that deep a roster, really, right? You know, I think we've seen kind of what happens when you have Kyrie Irving and frankly a more talented <laughs> group of younger players than. Than the Nets have. I mean, obviously, you know, if you were taking Kevin Durant, then let me see if we can even calculate kind of what the well, we do full have a strength full version. strength.
0: Yeah, um, so uh, it would have. Metric. It would have
3: Durant as a. They'd have him a fifty-win
0: team in the regular
3: season with with those players both healthy. Let me look up <laughs> Kevin Durant's Raptor score here. Nate, uh, we're gonna
0: vamp while Nate looks it up on his computer.
3: Okay. Yeah, it has Durant as being a, um, a little underrated based on our current stats, meaning that he'll get a boost. A raptor boost. A raptor boost. But also remember, we are not and we are not this season tinkering around with like any type of injury adjustment. So like, you know, you're not gonna get a fully healthy version of Katie either. And this is kind of saying I mean it knows that like he missed a fair number of games in the postseason, he actually had some nagging injuries, so but doesn't know
0: that like he tore his at least. Well, what were some of the most interesting lessons that you learned from uh, your work on Raptors so far? Like you've looked at some of the correlations between yeah. some of the player tracking things and you know team performance. So one interesting one is that is that having a lot of
3: assisted two point field goals is bad. It's bad.
0: Oh.
3: Well, not bad. The guys who get a lot of those shots tend not to provide a lot of spacing. And also probably you want to give a fair amount of credit to the passer and not just to, to the scorer. So, you know, thinking about kind of the modern NBA, you know, an assisted three-pointer is generally the most efficient shot in basketball. So lots of credit to go around, right? An unassisted three-pointer is becoming an increasingly fashionable shot as well. Not quite as efficient, but the fact that you can kind of get off from any position at any time, a pull-up three is quite valuable an unassisted two-pointer means you're able to drive to the basket or kind of, it's kind of like creating scoring, right? You might also get fouled. You might also get fouled, right? Whereas you can get a lot of assisted two-pointers, because like, by the way, almost all the assisted two-pointers are near the basket, right? I mean, there isn't much mid-brain shooting at all anymore, and there, you know, the 18-footer that Kawhi shoots is probably not an assisted shot anyway, right? But you can stand around near the basket and have lobs and pick and rolls and whatever else, right, and kind of get a lot of cheap points that way and those guys are not terribly effective scorers, right? If you're scoring 15, 15 points per game yeah. on lobs and stuff near the basket, right, and you're not very mobile then, you know, as a scorer you're not that valuable. However, one funny thing is that when you correctly account for whether their shots are assisted or not, or at least two points are assisted, then all of a sudden you properly detect the value of offensive rebounds, right? So if you have guys who are in rebounding position, in essence, near the basket, then some of these other stats like say, oh, offensive rebounds are, are not very valuable, which is ludicrous. I mean, an offensive rebound resets the possession, and so you know kind of, and it's hard to get an offensive rebound, especially now, right? So we know prima facie that offensive rebounds must be valuable. The reason that these stats don't find that is because offensive rebounds are inversely correlated with these assisted twos around the basket for which these players get... Too much credit, right? Especially according to stats like PER, right? Where Hassan Whiteside or whatever is a good example of a guy who has like a, a twenty one PER or something, right? Because it's like, oh, it's high efficiency scoring attempts, right? You know, he shoots sixty percent or something, right? First of all, he's not shooting at all, really, right? Someone's you know passing him the ball, and and he's big enough that he can dunk, and there's some skill involved in that, but not a ton. However, he also is a guy who gets a lot of Contested rebounds and offensive rebounds, and that's pretty valuable in the other direction, right? Another example of that is that so again, if you look at these things that just kind of take a naive regression, and say, okay, let's take a bunch of variables and kind of plug it in and see what it says. There are some models that actually say that on defense personal fouls are a positive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which isn't also not true. Fouls are not good. The reason it finds that is because personal fouls are correlated with defending possessions, right? with being the nearest defender on a shot, which, as we know through Draymond, is quite valuable to be the nearest defender on a shot. That prevents an open shot. And if you're a good defender, it can lower the opponent's field goal percentage, right? So if you can't measure that part of it, it's like, okay, well, at least we know that a guy is active defensively if he is if he is getting fouls, right? But now we have a direct way to measure how active they are defensively, and so shooting fouls properly have a, a negative coefficient i
1: think we can leave this here excited to see how raptor turns out when you're done with it you'll have to come back on and tell us about all your the best findings from raptor
0: and maybe new even new acronyms after that
1: Ooh, yeah even more acronyms all the Remember, acronyms
0: draymond is a component of raptor which, which feeds goes into carmelo,
1: carmelo. <laughs> everybody keep that straight there will be a quiz later thank you so much for joining us on okay, this edition of model talk Before we move on, let's have a quick word from one of this week's sponsors, ButcherBox. Summer is here, and you know what that means. It's barbecue season. ButcherBox offers 20 different cuts of meat to choose from. You can customize your box with grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, or wild-caught sockeye salmon from Bristol Bay, Alaska, and it's delivered right to your door. ButcherBox works closely with the best farms committed to raising animals humanely. This ensures not only an ethical process, but one that results in a better quality, better tasting, nutrient dense meat with no added hormones or antibiotics ever. Plus, it's affordable. A month's worth of meat from ButcherBox comes out to less than six bucks a meal. Whether you're cooking for all your friends and family or just yourself, ButcherBox has the cuts and options you need to make every meal a memorable one. ButcherBox is offering new members who sign up at ButcherBox.com takedown, $20 off their first box, plus six free burgers in every box until October 15th. That's ButcherBox.com takedown for $20 off your first box, plus free burgers in every box until October 15th. Again, that's ButcherBox.com takedown. The British Open, or the Open Championship, which we refuse to call it that. We follow AP style on this podcast, so we're going to refer to it always as the British Open. It is the last major of the season, and it will return to Royal Portrush in Northern Ireland for the first time in 61 years. Northern Ireland is, of course, home to the favorite for the tournament, Rory McIlroy, who set the record for the course at the ripe old age of 16. So, that's that's good. It's good to have that to your name before you even Well, I was going to really say, they, they
0: probably shouldn't have like a huge major tournament at a course that's so easy a 16-year-old can right. just run over right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Here's Matt Adams on the Golf Channel discussing expectations for McElroy heading into the, the British Open.
0: If he was able to win at Royal Port Rush, it's going to be one of the pinnacle moments in all of the game of golf.
1: So Rory is widely considered one of the best golfers in the world and is currently ranked third in the official World Golf Ranking. Yeah, and he hasn't won a major in five years. Jeff, how can we reconcile those two things?
2: Uh, His putter. I think it's pretty much that. He's not a good putter. He's having a great season, actually. You wouldn't really know that from the sort of tone of the way people write about him, just because his majors haven't been, you know, particularly great. And, you know, sometimes actually his finishes in these majors looks good, but he does a lot of like, not really in contention, but have a good round Sunday and kind of creep up the the final leaderboard, um, but uh, no, I do think it is a little surprising. I, mean, I think you know a few years ago, most people thought he was would have six or seven majors by now. So, um, I mean, obviously the weakest part of his game. And I think what you'll see uh, in the sort of regular run of the mill um, PGA Tour events is that his driving is so good. I mean, he can just dominate these quote unquote easy courses. Most of them are actually quite difficult. Um, but the non-major setup, you know, where the rough is 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 obviously grown out more, and it, it's they try to make it even more difficult.
1: Jeff, how important will his putting be this week at this course?
2: The course fits him well. It, it, it's you kind of hear both sides, like oh, drive, people who can drive the ball a mile are going to do great, um, and then you hear it's actually target golf, and everyone's in play. But um, obviously, he's familiar with it, which is an advantage. That he has over a lot. I mean, Tiger has no idea what's going on with this course this week. He's really learning it right now um, in these couple days before the tournament starts. They say Brooks' caddy knows it really well, so that's an advantage. But I do think the familiarity and just the general like link style, you know, should fit his game. Um, you know, obviously his approach game's awesome. So if he's putting everything within eight or nine feet like he does when he's on, you know, the putting is not going to matter as much.
1: So, you mentioned Brooks Kepka, who seems to do nothing but win majors, as we have talked about quite a bit.
0: Ad nauseum.
1: Yeah. He is trying to become the first player since the 1930s to record five consecutive top two finishes at a major. Neil, how big of a threat does he pose to McElroy?
0: Well, I mean, you have to figure that he poses a pretty significant one. If you look at the odds, though, so according to. Um, this, this wonderful site called datagolf.ca that we like to look at very frequently. It actually has McElroy as the favorite 6.4% chance to win, and it doesn't really have Kepka anywhere near the top 10. Uh, and so I find that interesting, whether it's just an artifact of the course or that some of these predictive models, this is just the Kepka problem. You know, he's number one in the official world golf rankings, and uh, we've talked about his his major winning uh, tendencies yet a lot of these rankings are based on also performance in the week-to-week tournaments and so if you don't do as well in those it's still kind of a question of well are you playing well define playing well you know are you optimizing your game for the majors which maybe you should be doing uh, and it bears mentioning that it's not just Datagolf that doesn't have Kepka high. Uh, Jeff Sagarin, who does the Golf Week rankings, only has Kepka 16th that has McElroy number one. So it, it is just this bizarre discrepancy. I think whether you look at statistics that include normal PGA Tour events, Kepka is going to be lower, and then when you look at things like the official world golf ranking that gives a tremendous amount of weight to major finishes, it's it's going to have him higher, and I think our perception as fans or or journalists following the sport— is skewed toward majors too. So, you know, is Kepka having a great season? I think most people would say yes, uh, given his performances in the majors. Then you sort of look at his uh, rank and file event numbers and you're like, I'm not so sure. So I think he's just like broken golf
2: predicting, I think in some ways. Well, he's actually, it's actually funny because he's quite similar to Kawhi Leonard.
1: That is what I was literally just (laughs) going to say. He is the Kawhi Leonard of golf.
2: Yes, he is.
1: We figured it out.
2: And they're both sort of kind of frosty and weird with reporters. It just makes sense.
1: Wait, have we heard Brooks Koepka's laugh? Is it, yeah, right. Like a Kawhi laugh?
2: So I think what he'll, he'll do is that he'll also enter some of those PGA Tour events and not do well, whereas a lot of those models, Neil, are not docking. You know, if Tiger and DJ, who basically just only play majors these days— um are not going out there and and posting bad scores they're not going to get docked as much i mean tigers played at what 10 rounds of golf since the masters i mean he's he's essentially limited his schedule to such a degree that he only goes yeah that's a great point i mean kepka has played
0: 42 measured rounds on the pga tour so far this season and so you know and and this is not to say he's been bad I mean he ranks 16th in strokes gained you know it's always around that like 15th 16th ranking in in all of these metrics and he's 11th in strokes gained T to green which we found is one of the best most predictive metrics of how you're playing at golf at any given time because the putting like we we're talking about with McElroy Uh, And his struggles in the past, despite his obvious talent for hitting the ball far uh, and and his iron play, is that putting can vary wildly, whether it's from round to round or within a round, shot to shot, uh, hole to hole or across seasons. It's just guys will, you know, either gain or lose the ability to putt almost at random. And that's why Ben Hogan, didn't he suggest that golf should just get rid of putting? It's just be about the actual hitting of the ball toward the green, and then once you get it there, you know, uh, whatever. Just consider it a hole out after after two putts.
1: That seems great. I love that. Uh, putting is the worst. I would definitely, I, I'd go for that. It is interesting to me that we are hard on Kepka for only winning majors. We're not hard on Kawhi Leonard for not really playing during the regular season and just showing up in the playoffs. Well, I think that's
2: more of a recent phenomenon. Imagine Kawhi, if he could make his own schedule and just be like, I'm only going to play playoff game. I'm going to take off you know, this game against Indiana. Kawhi being a, uh,
0: you know, veteran of the Spurs uh, program that sort of pioneered the idea of DNP rest days, you know, and all of this. Who's to say that uh, NBA players don't kind of make their own schedule? It's not to the same uh, extent that golfers can kind of sit out uh, and, and only play the big events. But I do think that rest becoming more of a factor in the NBA is sort of the equivalent of, you know, load management, as we talked about. Right, um, right, And people really, that phrase, I think, was the one of the phrases of the year in the 2019 NBA season.
1: I need to incorporate more load management in my in my career. Yeah,
0: we well. all need to load yeah. manage yeah, more. Yeah, yeah.
1: Guys, I'm taking a load management day. <laughs> See you tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we're talking about Rory playing on a course he knows really well. Jeff, is there a... Is there a home field advantage in golf or at least like an edge for a player who has a connection to a course?
2: I mean, we've seen it happen. I think uh, Patrick Reed winning the Masters, of course, you know, he played a ton and grown up around uh, was an example. But then there's also examples of guys. I think it was um, Tommy Fleetwood or someone who was playing on their home course a couple of years ago and just came out flat. I mean, there's also this idea that he's not going to be able to handle the pressure um and you know, winning it in Northern Ireland in this big, you know, sort of historic return to Northern Ireland, um, that he might choke under the under that weight, which if you've watched him play and you've seen him have, you know, a couple of famous meltdowns, it's certainly not out of the question. Um, but I, I wouldn't wanna to read too much into that. It's also a complicated country with the politics and everything involved. You know, he announced he was gonna play for Ireland in the Olympics, when he had to pick a country rather than Great Britain. So it, it, it's not, I mean, I don't wanna get into the political history of Northern Ireland here. This would take up the whole podcast, but it's a complicated situation.
1: I like, I like that take. Northern Ireland, it's complicated. <laughs> so say Rory wins this weekend, do you think it would be more meaningful to him to win at home in Northern Ireland, or would a bigger accomplishment be to win the Masters and complete his career Grand Slam?
2: I think this would be huge. I mean, this would be, to him, probably on par, I think, with Tiger winning the Masters this year. In terms of, like, how important it was and what a moment it was. So, again, that just adds to the pressure. Because unlike Tiger in the Masters, he's the favorite going into this.
1: So which other players should we keep our eye on this weekend? Anyone you guys are particularly paying attention to?
2: Well, Phil Mickelson is fasting. So... That's interesting.
1: He lost 15 pounds.
2: He's not eating. He's gonna be starving.
1: Yeah, I don't. Does that? I'm not sure. I'm not clear on how that yeah, helps your golf seems game. seems like
2: a bad not idea.
0: It's so worth saying that the uh, the data golf top five for their uh, predictions are McElroy at 6.4 percent, Dustin Johnson at six percent. He's a mainstay. In fact, he has the second highest uh, odds, Jeff. That's a very familiar position for him to be in second <laughs> uh, at a Ouch. major. And then Patrick Cantlay uh, with 5.3%, John Rahm with 4.1%, uh, and Adam Scott uh, with 3.2% odds. Where's Tiger? Tiger is uh, just, I, I think he's at number 10, 2.7% chance uh, to win. So roughly the same as Xander Schauffele and Justin Thomas, two of our favorites.
1: <laughs> Are they? Are they our favorites? Well,
0: I know Xander Schauffele just from his name. Well, right, yeah. <laughs> is a favorite.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, let's leave that there and move on. But before we do, Neil really wants you all to know that this episode of Hot Take Down is also brought to you by LinkedIn. Take it away, Neil.
0: Yeah. Do do I ever want you to know? So when you're juggling hiring with everything it takes to grow your business, it's important that you reach the right candidates at the right time. And that's where LinkedIn comes in. Over 600 million members visit LinkedIn to make connections, learn and grow as professionals and discover new job opportunities. In fact, LinkedIn members add 15 new skills to their profiles and apply to 35 job posts every two seconds. That's a lot. That's how LinkedIn makes sure your job post gets in front of people with the right hard skills and the right soft skills. Things like collaboration, work ethic and adaptability. LinkedIn does the legwork to match you to the most qualified candidates so you can focus on hiring the right person who will transform your business. So to get $50 off your first job post, go to linkedin.com slash pain, my last name, P-A-I-N-E. Again, that's linkedin.com slash pain to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply.
1: At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week, we're joined in the studio by our producer, Grace Lynch. Grace,
4: start us off. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me on the show again. This week, I wanted to talk about the two finales that we saw with Wimbledon and the Cricket World Cup finals coming down to these incredible tiebreakers. First, I just have to say, Sarah, you're factually incorrect (laughs) in your disdain for roger vetter he is a god amongst men we should all be grateful to live in his presence i wanted that
2: was uh, that was surprising i want to tell
4: who has that opinion
1: i want to tell listeners what grace did when i said that (laughs) she slacked me all caps
4: ew (laughs) so that is uh, how i feel properly shamed opinion (laughs) you're entitled to your opinion but that one's wrong.
2: what are your thoughts on muhammad ali
1: (laughs) wow overrated Overrated.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Um, but my interest in this weekend's events i've been a long-time tennis fan but cricket's really my new focus and i became curious about cricket one because it's one of the most popular sports in the world that's just never talked about in the united states and also i realized that their world cup started in may so it's just been going on for forever and so i was just so initially intrigued by how it could possibly even take that long to begin with and then this was also compounded by the fact that the show Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj did an excellent episode about corruption in the cricket world in India. Highly recommend watching it. It's a great time. And we do not have time to get into all of the political and historical implications of cricket. But it is fascinating. Well,
0: we'll have to do Northern Ireland first and then right. move yes, on. Yeah. Yes, We'll
4: have a, a whole nother show on just Northern Ireland and India's cricket policies. But all of this led to what was... Fortunately, a great time to tune into cricket as a uh, ignorant American, because we had one of the most exciting World Cup finales in cricket history, maybe one of the most exciting games ever played in the world of cricket. It was a huge event. And to explain why it was so huge, I kind of have to explain a bit about cricket structure. (laughs) So cricket is often compared to baseball, which makes sense on a surface level and it's, it's aesthetically similar And so it's very tempting There are two teams of 11 And one team is technically batting While the other team is fielding The team that's fielding doesn't the ball but it bowls the ball and the ball is smaller and heavier than a baseball travels very fast it is delivered with a straight arm so it has it's delivered in a a windmill style which makes for a very wild looking release and the ball also usually bounces before it hits the batsman it doesn't have to but it usually does and one of the objectives of the bowler is to hit the wickets that are behind the batsman and we've all seen these like little trophy-looking things that stand behind the batsman of a uh, cricket field, and those, those are the wickets.
0: That's not the trophy for winning the tournament. It's not the trophy for winning oh. the
4: tournament. It's the thing the the bowler's trying to knock down, and the batsman is protecting. And that helps actually the bowling terminology make more sense to me because it is kind of like trying to knock down pins, but there's someone in your way. So hold that in your mind. <laughs> but there's a few very key differences outside of a baseball analogy. One is that the whole field is in play. So there's no such thing as a, as a foul ball. All of the points where the team has spread out have specific names, which are also so fantastically fun, including silly point, short, fine leg, gully. Slips. These are all real positions, and there are also different boundaries which constitute different point structures, depending on how far the ball is whacked with those little uh, with the flat paddles. Is it's whacked another technical? That's what the turn. silly no. point does. <laughs> yeah, the silly point is whacking. No, um, whacking is my term for it. <laughs> so there's the one border which sits on the ground, which is already interesting. And if the ball hits these, this boundary, the batting team gets four runs and they don't have to actually physically run back and forth if it goes outside of this boundary they get six and that is kind of the equivalent of a home run the other thing to note is that there are two batsmen on the field for the team on offense at any given time and how they score a run if they don't hit a boundary or hit it outside of the boundaries is that they have to run and swap places and they're running between what they call the crease which is also a fun term that they use. It's as if there's always a runner on third. It's kind of a somewhat analogous way to think about it. So the game is also broken up into overs, which is kind of like an inning, where in the style of cricket that's played in the World Cup, one-day cricket, each team is limited to 50 overs per side. There's also test cricket, which is the original. These games last for five days. They take breaks for tea. It's incredibly British. And then there's also T20 cricket, which is this new modern form of cricket where there's 20 overs per side, and it lasts uh, about three hours for a game. It's much shorter, and it's much flashier.
0: By cricket standards.
4: (laughs) By cricket standards. It gets even more complicated to even try to make sense of the score because it's represented in a fraction of runs over uh, wickets lost but the wickets loss doesn't necessarily factor in until much later in the game. So it's kind of more of a reflection of the bowler than it is of the team batting. Next, you're going to tell me this is all in metric and Americans have no chance at all. (laughs) Um, We don't, we're so far behind. Um, But this is all to say that how the scoring works in this game, how you actually do score all the different ways that you can get out or not. It's incredibly complex. It's incredibly detailed, which is why it's absolutely insane that at the end of, Of 50 overs in the final, New Zealand and England were tied at 241 apiece. It just, of all the odds, it's truly so slim. And there were some kind of crazy calls. There were some crazy plays that I also would love to get into but, you know, can barely even wrap my own head around. But they ended up at 241 to 241. And so they went into what is called... I kid you not, an oopsie, which is a one-over-per-side eliminator is the official name of the tiebreaker scenario.
0: Do you think that that was like Carmelo? Like they come up with the
4: (laughs) acronym first? I hope so. I genuinely hope so. Um, It's colloquially referred to as a super-over, and a super-over is essentially extra time where each team gets one more over to score as many runs as possible. So they get six more balls bowled their batsmen
0: i just want to note that the term oopsie is not the colloquial term
4: <laughs> right yeah, yeah not that's, what the official one.
0: that's the official one the super over is the colloquialism
4: and super overs were first introduced in 2008 to the t20 cricket style as another way to keep these games faster in 2011 it was introduced to one day cricket world cup Style, But it was left unused. And in 2015, they clarified that only the final round could be decided by a super over and that other tide break metrics would be used in knockout stages. Again, it went unused until this year where we enter into a scenario in which we need a super over tied during after the regulation, 50 overs apiece. England goes up 15 runs. New Zealand, therefore, subsequently after, is trying to score 15 runs as well to To tie 16 to win, they get up to their final ball, bold. It is bold. The batsman hits it. The batsmen start running to exchange places. It does not make it all the way to a boundary. They make it to one run, tied 15, and then they hit a wicket, and they don't get their 16th run, and it's tied 15-15. So now the super over is also tied, and in that case, it goes down to which team has accumulated more boundaries. So
0: the, home runs?
4: Home runs and if they just have hit this boundary. Oh. Six runs and the four run gains and England had a superior number of boundaries collected in the game and so they won the World Cup final and <laughs> cricket after tying twice and then just having a higher boundary count and the cricket world is Subsequently, losing its mind, <laughs> understandably so. Because of the rule? Because it's, it's so many steps of rules. It's not only that they went to a tiebreaker, which they've never had to do before, but then the tiebreaker was tied. And so now it's the tiebreaking of the tiebreaker's tie.
2: Do you think cricket sounds complicated because we're just unfamiliar with the rules? Like if you sat down and tried to explain baseball to someone, wouldn't it be equally as perplexing trying to get in there what a balk was and what the infield fly rule was and all these kind of little small terminology and rules that surround the game that are just secondhand.
4: Totally. I think that cricket is no more complicated than many of our sports. We're just truly unfamiliar with it. But I think that it's something that we could all really enjoy. (laughs) So that was my, my deep dive into One, just how cricket is structured and how this incredible finale came down to the slimmest of margins. And that happened to beautifully coincide with Wimbledon this weekend, where we saw a similarly unlikely scenario play out. Wimbledon has just implemented this new tiebreak setup. This is coming after some historically long matches at Wimbledon, including John Isner's Defeat of Nicholas Mahout after three days, 11 hours, and five minutes of play in 2010, which went to a historic 70 68 game split in the fifth set. And then more recently, and this was really the game that put this over the edge, Kevin Anderson similarly got locked into a marathon game with John Isner that lasted six hours and 36 minutes in the semifinals in 2018. And after that, Anderson then had to go into a finals with Djokovic, who beat him in straight sets, and he made it known that he was quite tired from having to play a marathon match just prior. And so Wimbledon thought it appropriate to implement this new tie-breaking system, and the U.S. Open has also had a tie-break system for their fifth set. It's just, uh, in terms of the majors, it's just the Australian and the French that don't have them.
2: I don't like it. I'm not a fan because I don't think the Isner scenario is going to replay itself, especially not between Federer and Djokovic. It seems like, you know, Kevin Anderson, this is another, like, serve guy. He's just going to never be broken but never break. So I don't think it's going to come up in these epic matches. Second of all, just go with it. Just embrace it. It's like the NHL playoffs in overtime where it could go on for seven overtime six overtimes you're not going to have one five overtime game and then be like okay after the fourth overtime then we do a shootout that's the way it feels to me commit to it
1: I get it for the Any time before the final, because Mm -hmm. it is ridiculous. And it did, like, that is. Okay, I agree with that. It was just like, what is happening? I mean, it screwed up the schedules. Everything was a a mess. And I I felt for Kevin Anderson, too, having to play Djokovic, who's obviously um, the superior tennis player, the best of all tennis players, I I think, maybe.
4: I really like Djokovic. (laughs) I think he's a fabulous tennis player. His game is so beautiful, it's so technically proficient, he's so much fun to watch. But Federer, it just he glides on. It. He's he's a he's a different level of of elegance. He's oh my so God, awesome.
1: That's like
0: <laughs> he's such a class. I'm not act. sure.
1: I'd like some data on all of that, Grace. Like I need a little. I'm gonna fact check you on he's all of that.
4: Statistically more elegant.
2: He's friends of Anna <laughs> oh Wintour. God. He owns
1: cows,
4: and he has two sets he's got of, twins. A lot of kids. That's wild. What <laughs> a
1: man! Well, how can I can't? How can I argue with that? Anyway, but I do think for the final, there's not really any reason to do it. It's not like we're conserving their energy for the U.S. Open or something. I mean, like, just, just keep playing.
2: Kevin Anderson, John Isner, sorry, learn how to break someone. You know, you're playing on the on the best surface for your serve, and that's why you're there.
1: It is telling that John Isner is always involved in these.
2: Well, I mean, it's the whole like win
0: by two thing that's very annoying in tennis. You can't just win by one like in uh, other sports. You got to win by two, which I think is why the better tennis players win more often because it's, you know, a truer test of skill. You don't get like fluke, you know, uh, wins as often. But then when it's like two incredibly evenly matched players like Federer and Djokovic, then it's like. Okay, what do we do now? Like, each one of them is going to win one, and then the next one will go to the other one, and they'll alternate literally forever. And you have to end it at some point. Well,
1: that was what was fun, too. There was uh, one, you know, round of <laughs> of um, points there where... Uh, Federer broke Djokovic and right, Djokovic that was his big Federer chance back. right exactly yeah, that was like, Federer's
0: like one chance in that yeah, match yeah. to to do it but you knew that yeah like anytime someone broke someone else that was like the crack in the door that so uh, you know they put their foot through and could they burst through but that's so rare like we think of how many uh how many games were played in that match and, and and to just have it come down to like did you take advantage of the one time that you broke the other guy's serve I don't know. It's just that's fundamental to tennis, and that's why it's, like, so difficult to kind of figure out a way to break one of the – once you're locked into this uh, these long matches. Yeah.
4: And I think people were frustrated because Djokovic won the first and the third set off of tiebreakers as well.
0: Federer won more games in the match mm-hmm. than Djokovic did too. So that would be, like, your equivalent of going to the tiebreakers, having it be, like, home runs plus doubles or whatever the thing – boundaries in, in cricket. Uh- yeah.
1: Except that tiebreaks are a pretty regular part of tennis, and you do have to. I mean, they're Mm -hmm. their own thing. They're different than the rest of the match, but they are played often enough that it's not like it's foreign to a player. Like they have to play well in the tiebreaks.
0: They know that's going to be. And that's part of it. There's strategy involved. It was a little anticlimactic for it to just be like, and it's over, (laughs) like that. The way it kind of played out, especially since Djokovic seemed to sort of just dominate the once it got to the to the tie break.
1: On the other hand, I did have things to do with, with the rest of my Sunday, right. so.
0: Yes. That <laughs> match lasted how long? Almost 5 Four, hours? Yeah. 4
4: hours and 55 minutes. Yeah. And during which Federer hit 94 winners, which is his personal record in a Grand Slam final. Got any stats there for Djokovic? No. Just to, <laughs> <Other> <laughs> Obviously than Djokovic not. is poor Novak. <laughs>
1: <laughs> The one thing I did learn today is that sticky wicket is from cricket. I didn't know that. <laughs> I say that what a did lot, you think and I have no idea. From? I don't know
0: what else has a wicket.
1: I honestly did not know that cricket had wickets. <laughs> croquet is wickets. Yes, and I've played oh, croquet. I played yeah. croquet more than I played cricket. For sure, I'm great at croquet. Oh, we
0: should play. Oh, croquet. maybe we could have a rabbit hole about croquet.
4: Uh, yes, I'm
1: on it. All right, well, that'll do it for this week's show. <laughs> thank you, Grace, so much for joining us for that rabbit hole, and thank you, listeners. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. This is still a new podcast, so if you like what you heard, please subscribe. Also, review and rate the show. It does help other people discover us. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think of the program. Our podcast producer and contributor this week is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Nate, Neil, and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.